0: John Nash was this eccentric genius who struggled all of his life with schizophrenia. In fact, he's still alive. In 1994, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Mathematics and Economics uh, because his thinking was so formative uh, and revolutionary in the field of economics uh, in the last part of the last century. Um, He arrived at a theorem that uh, really just changed the way we look at the world. Like every true theorem, like every true scientific law, it captured a part of the world that had gone largely unnoticed and helped us to notice it. And when you notice something and and you're aware of it, you're able to use it to your advantage. And that's what Nash's uh, theorem, sometimes referred to as Nash's equilibrium, did. Now as legend would have it and as Hollywood would have it, uh, he arrived at this formula trying to figure out a very deep metaphysical problem uh, how, What do you do when you have four guys who confront five girls in a bar And they all want to dance with the same girl It's a very deep problem uh, I want to watch a clip that sort of illustrates the problem he's trying to solve Please excuse the uh, sexism and blonde stereotyping that goes on in this movie It's Hollywood and it was 1944, so cut it some slack So, this is John Nash in the movie, A Beautiful Mind. Incoming gentlemen. Nash, you might want to stop shuffling your papers for five seconds. I will not buy you gentlemen beer. Oh, we're not here for beer, my friend. She should be moving in slow motion. Uh, (laughs) Will she want a large wedding, you think? Should we say swords, gentlemen? Pistols at dawn? Have you remembered nothing? Recall the lessons of Adam Smith, the father of modern economics. In uh, in competition, individual Mm -hmm. ambition serves the The common good. Exactly. (laughs) Every man for himself, gentlemen. And those who strike out are stuck with their friends. I'm not going to strike out. You can lead a blonde to water, but you can't make a drink. I don't think you said that. All right, nobody move. She's looking over now. Why is she looking at Nash? Oh god. Alright, he may have the upper hand now, but wait until he opens his mouth. Oh <laughs> 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 uh, yes, that was in the history books. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Smith needs revision. What are you talking about? If we all go for the blonde. We block each other. Not a single one of us is going to get her. So then we go for her friends. But they will all give us the cold shoulder because nobody likes to be second choice. But well, what if no one goes for the blonde? We don't get in each other's way and we don't insult the other girls. It's the only way we win. <laughs> Adam Smith said the best result comes <laughs> from everyone in the group doing what's best for himself, right? That's what he said. That's right. Incomplete. Incomplete. Okay? Because the best result would come <laughs> from everyone in the group doing what's best for himself and the group. Ash, <laughs> this is some way for you to get the blunt on your own. Governing dynamics, gentlemen. Governing dynamics. Adam Smith. was wrong with Thank you. Um, Adam Smith was wrong, or at least he needs revision. Adam Smith, whose philosophy of economics uh, really held sway for several hundred years here in America, um, taught that... Uh, that what's good for the whole is just to have kind of laissez-faire competition where everybody uh, fends for themselves. What Nash saw was that if you do that, you all strike out. Uh, that uh, rather the whole is served when everybody, yes, is looking out for themselves, but they do it also while looking out for the interest of the whole. When the whole benefits the, the individuals that form the whole benefit, and when the individuals that form the whole benefit... The whole benefits. Now, it requires a little bit of self-sacrifice on the part of the individuals. That means we all got to agree not to go for the blonde. But on the other hand, we all get dancing partners. Uh, And so this was Nash's uh, theory uh, that really revolutionized the way we think about economics. Instead of defining your good in competition with the good of the whole, Nash says, define your good in relationship to the good of the whole. Rather than thinking win-lose, think win-win incredible difference. This has actually uh, been a way of thinking. Nash wasn't the only one who was instrumental in this. But uh, uh, this way of thinking has opened up our eyes to a lot of things about the world that were previously not seen or at least not appreciated. You find Nash's equilibrium or something like that, this relationship between the whole and the individual, uh, all over the place throughout the world. Now indulge me here a little bit. I like to integrate a lot of different fields, and uh, you know, I I don't get a chance to teach philosophy anymore at college, so I'm going to turn this into a philosophy class here just for five minutes. A few, you know, some of you, hopefully more than a few, will find it interesting. Some of you might find it very, very boring, but hang with me here, okay? Will you indulge me for five minutes? I told you I was going to shoot at the head. It's just interesting, interesting stuff. You find this all over the place. Do you know that ants Ants are profoundly stupid. I mean, they are capable. Uh, put up an individual ant. You'll see how stupid they even look. Stupid. Look at that. Um, <laughs> ants are capable of seven behaviors, give or take one or two. You know, they're 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 not the most creative beings in the world. And yet, when you when when they're part of a colony, as they always are, they exhibit incredible creativity. Here's a bunch of ants folding a leaf to catch water so they can drink. Uh, they're smarter than you think. There's something like a a group mind that happens when these very dumb ants get together and kind of uh, pool their resources together. An ant colony is so sophisticated, it takes a a high-powered modern computer to map out the the complexity of the mathematical problems that ants solve when they're doing it together. Each one can only do seven behaviors, but together they can challenge a, a, a computer in terms of the stuff that they can do. That's uh, what's good for every individual ant is to contribute to the whole. What's good for the whole is for the individual ants to contribute to it. Every ant does, uh, acts in its own self-interest, but in, in doing such, it's just the way the world is wired, it contributes to the interest of the whole because there's a whole lot more you can do as a group than you can do individually. Birds, when they fly, there's something like a group mind uh, to birds. They, 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 they get a formation that is incredibly sophisticated aerodynamically way smarter than any of these individual birds are capable of but all the birds benefit by flying in a certain formation they fly much more efficiently by having them all there the group benefits by the group benefiting every individual that's part of the group also benefits bees exhibit the same kind of behavior in beehives every individual bee contributes to the good of the whole the whole contributes to the good of the individuals you find this throughout the animal kingdom Um, the higher up the food chain you go, you find the more sophisticated is the group behavior. Many animals hunt in packs, and when one finds a kill, finds a prey, they, are, they signal to the others to come and share in this. Because they've learned on a sort of instinctual basis that if they're, if they're going to eat on a regular basis, they need to share with one another when they find something. And they share the, the meals, and they share the child-rearing or not child-rearing, young-rearing, and the protection and all those sorts of things, you find this principle uh, permeating the entire world. Uh, It's like a group think in some ways. You need to think of that flock of birds as one organism. Because it acts like one organism. And, and you need to think of the ant colony as an organism. And all the individual plant, uh, uh, ants as part of that organism. And a beehive is like one organism. And all the individual bees are part of that organism. In fact, all of reality exhibits this sort of a structure. Take, for example, this podium. Nice podium, a nice see through podium. You like this podium? It's a good podium. It's solid, right? Well, on one level, yes, but on another level, I, I'm almost done here, so just hang with me. On another level, this is a, a bustle of activity. You know that? There's all sorts of activity. There's motion going on all over the place. This is composed of a gazillion of subatomic particles. And on the, the smallest measurable level, called the quantum level, as some of you maybe know from quantum physics, what you have are a bunch of quantum particles acting out, exhibiting a certain degree of spontaneity. But the way they exhibit their spontaneity, it's really unpredictable at a quantum level. You can predict the range of probability of any of their behaviors, but not specifically what their behavior is going to do. And yet the podium doesn't disintegrate. Isn't that fascinating? What would you learn at church today? Well, the podium's not going to disintegrate. It's a solid podium. But you see, the reason is because it's, it's like every individual particle is sort of aware of the whole even at a, at a quantum level. Uh, and what's good for the whole are those that quantum spontaneity. What's good for the spontaneity is the quantum whole. To understand the behavior of any particular particle, like understanding any particular ant or any particular bird, you've got to understand it in the, in the concept of, of the whole that it is a part of, which is what the EPR experiment proved, but the principle of non-locality, never mind that one. Okay, I'm done. Do you, do you see here that this, this idea... Uh, It seems to be structured throughout all of reality. It's found everywhere. In fact, well, it's given rise to a lot of different, uh, at least influenced a lot of different fields of science, emergent property theory, some aspects of chaos theory, complex adaptive systems theory, game theory, Nash virtually invented that. It's found all over the place and it's even found, yes folks, in theology. At least some of us want it to be found in theology because you see, If you're thinking holistically along these these patterns, um, you can begin to understand a Bible phenomenon that otherwise is hard to understand. On one level, you have the fact that God controls the entire world, is driving it towards a definite end. He's the sovereign Lord of all creation, right? And yet you also find very clearly in the Bible that human beings are created free and we're morally responsible and we act out on our own. Now, a lot of people have argued, sometimes very vigorously, that God can only control the whole thing if he controls all the parts. Somebody said that if if there's one molecule that's not under God's control, the whole thing might be threatened. And certainly God must predestine what human beings do. Everything's got to be fixed if God's going to control the entire world. But I, I submit to you that that's not only unbiblical thinking. That's thinking that's contrary to the very logic of this podium, the logic of birds in flight, the logic of beehives, the logic of ants. There there is, you can have a stability at a whole level and still have spontaneity at a micro level so long as that micro level acts out in ways that enhance or at least don't destroy the the whole level. Somebody say amen. Okay, that's my little private self-indulgent little thing there. Bottom line is this. This thinking has been kind of revolutionary in the 20th century but the world's been the way the world is all along. We just didn't notice it. And like every good mathematical theorem and like every good scientific formula, it captures an aspect of the world that God created. And it should not be surprising to Christians that the world exhibits this marvelous balance between the individual and the whole. In fact, life itself can be defined as the harmony between the individual and the whole. It shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because God himself exhibits that kind of a nature. From the perspective of biblical revelation, we see that the creator of all that is, is triune. He's not simply an individual, not just a monad that gives birth to the creation. But God is in himself interpersonal relationships. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit don't act in competition with one another. They always work in synergy with one another. They always work in harmony with one another. They are on one level distinct, but on another level, they're perfectly united. And the heart of God really is the heart of a perfect loving social unity. And the mind of God is really the mind of a perfect loving social unity. And the character of God is really the character of a perfect loving social unity. God himself is this this uh, unity and diversity, which is why God inherently is love. God creates this world, and so it shouldn't surprise us that everything from the level of quantum particles up to human beings and probably beyond exhibits the same sort of feature of unity and diversity. What's good for the individual is good for the whole. What's good for the whole is good for the individual. Human beings exhibit this more profoundly than any other aspect of creation, at least when we're living right. Right? But we don't have to, and that's what makes us really unique. When we live in unity amidst our individuality, when we define our individual good as uh, in in relationship with rather than in competition with the good of the whole, we exhibit the nature of God, and we do it out of love because we do it out of choice. The rest of creation just does it because it's wired that way. So human beings are really the pinnacle of of God's creation because of the unique way that we can exhibit this unity and diversity, but we don't have to. In fact, according to the biblical revelation, we often don't because we are fallen. The fall, you could almost think of along these lines, and I don't want to beat up Adam Smith too much, but in some ways you could see the fall as... Us living according to Adam Smith's philosophy, as if that's if the final truth. Every man for himself, every woman for herself. You're on this on your own. You need to strive and get life on your own. And that is, I submit to you, the essence of the fall. Look at Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the serpent tempts Eve. And what does he tempt her with? He says, did God say that you can't eat of that forbidden tree? And Eve, instead of saying, well, it's for our own good, that's kind of a no trespassing sign so that we remember that we're not God and he is and we want to you know, walk in relationship with him. Rather than that, she bought into the lie that God was threatened by that tree. The Serpent said, if you eat of that tree, then you shall be wise, you'll be like God, you'll be knowing good and evil. And the reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because he's threatened by you. He doesn't want any competition. God isn't your friend, God's your competitor. And so what happens is Eve now defines her humanity not in relationship with God, but rather in separation from God, fragmented from God. She believed that if she was going to be all that she can be, she had to look out for herself. Got to look out for number one. You can't trust God, and so you, it's, up to, it's up to yourself to get life, to get worth, to get significance, and that is the essence of, of the fall. Everybody for themselves. And when our relationship with God gets fragmented, our relationship with one another gets fragmented, you also see this in Genesis 3, as when they're called on the carpet, they, they blame one another, they blame God, they blame the serpent, they further separate each other because of their judgment, because judgment is the antithesis of love, and love's the thing that holds it all together. And they to get involved in that. We spent all last year talking about that. But see, with the fragmentation of a relationship with God, where we define ourselves over and against God rather than in relationship with God, results in a fragmentation in a relationship with ourselves and with one another. We define who we are, our rights, our happiness, in competition with one another rather than in relationship with one another. And it gets passed on through Cain and Abel and then throughout the rest of history. Instead of saying, me with you, forming a we, it's me against you forming a mess. And so it happens throughout history. You can see this very clearly in the phenomenon of marriage. Let's talk about marriage for a little bit. Marriage was designed by God to sort of be the the jewel that expresses the unity and diversity of God's own being as a husband and wife come together and form a beautiful us. uh, their, Their individuality is affirmed in relationship to one another. It's not just me, it's a we. When people learn to think like a we, and they have a merging of hearts and a merging of minds and a merging of agendas. Nothing is more beautiful than that. And as the Bible portrays it, this was kind of the pinnacle of, 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 of God's uh, creation, the, the, uh, the most beautiful thing that we could do. But when we separated ourselves from God, and instead of thinking about ourselves in relationship to God, we thought about ourselves over and against God, and therefore thought about ourselves over and against one another, when we turned into Adam Smith, as it were, marriage becomes very problematic. It becomes a war zone. And this is what God said it would become in Genesis chapter 3. He says to Eve, after the fall, note that, he says, Your desire shall, because of this fall, because of what's happened here, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now I know there's a lot of folks that interpret that to, this is, interpret this to be sort of God's prescription for marriage. Okay, this is what God wants. The woman's supposed to desire to serve the husband, though it doesn't say to serve there, does it? Uh, and the husband's supposed to rule over the, the, the wife. And that's what a Christian marriage is all about. But I want you to think, it, think about it, try think about it a different way. The, the Lord here isn't prescribing what marriage should be. He's describing what marriage will be because of the fall. In fact, the word desire there does not mean desire to serve. It has the connotation of desire to manipulate. And the word rule there doesn't mean godly leadership. It means to tyrannize, to master somebody. And so what the Lord is saying here is this. Whereas you could have had this one flesh, one heart, one mind, a beautiful relationship, the ecstasy of which would mirror the triune God and would beget children and all of that, instead of that, what you're going to have is a war zone. Because now, you've gone the self-interest route, the Adam Smith route. So the husband defines his good against the wife's good, in, instead of in, in relationship to the wife's good. The wife defines her individual good against the man's good, rather than in relationship to the, the, the good of the whole. And the result is a war zone. The woman Seeks to manipulate the man, the man, because of superior strength, uh, typically throughout history, uh, lords over the woman, and that's the sorry state that marriage comes to. They're constantly trying to get one up on one another. Because they're not thinking we, they're thinking me. And When you go into a marriage and you're thinking what's in it for me, you're going to have conflict because they're thinking what's in it for me, instead of, and no one's thinking about what's in it for we. But only when you think about we do you model the Trinity and do things work right. Ask yourself this question. If you're in one of these war zone marriages or you've been in one of these war zone marriages or you know people are in one of these war zone marriages, these Adam Smith fallen marriages, is anybody happy? I mean, even if you get what you're trying to get, you do manipulate your husband or your husband does lord over you. Is that fulfilling? Is Is that really a happy state of affairs? I submit to you that it's not. You win in that thing, but you know what? Like the guys in the bar there, everybody loses. Everybody loses. I met a couple one time. They no longer go go here. They haven't gone for a couple years, but they moved up here uh, because the man got a job opportunity and he wanted to take it, and uh, that's all there was to it. The wife pleaded. The kids pleaded, please don't do this. We don't think this is God's will. Uh, This is going to really hurt us. We've got connections here, yada, 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 but the man, he defined being head of the household as my vote breaks all other votes and so boom they came up here the wife was miserable the kids were miserable and then he got miserable because uh he was mad that she wasn't happy i love that you know the, why can't you just be happy be happy and your market said, go be happy i can't be happy you took me away from my friends and, oh and so he's miserable you know the old slogan uh if mama ain't happy ain't nobody happy <laughs> amen that's right you better believe that one you see it's a miserable state of no one wins in that By trying to win individually, everybody loses. Now, God's prescription is very different. It's found in Ephesians 5. Paul says, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everybody say one another. I think that involves both the husband and the wife. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now Paul talks to the guy who holds all the power. In the first century, men were dominant. You you don't tell a wife, be subject to your husband. Of course she's going to be subject to her husband. You know, that's the the entire culture. So he says to the husband, okay, you initiate this process because you hold all the cards. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, all the husbands say, same way. You better believe it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. Look at that. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's what Nash was capturing. You want to love yourself? Want to do something good for yourself? Want to do yourself a favor? Love your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is what God does. God um, uh, didn't define his own joy, his own bliss, his own happiness in competition with us. He defined his joy and happiness in relationship to us. And because of that, it says in the Bible that for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. It gave God joy to do this. What made him happy was making us happy, if you will. What made him happy was, was uh, uh, bringing us into participating in his triune joy, and he was willing to lay down his life, subject himself to us, participate in what we were about in order to make that happen. By, by, by thinking in terms of what was, what was in our interest, God got what was in his interest. He wanted a bride without spot or wrinkle. It, made, it gave God joy to do this. So also, in a marriage, as in all relationships, if you think in terms of we, instead of just me, you begin to model the Trinity. And the best thing you can do, uh, husbands, are you interested in being happy? I bet you are. Here's what you do. Put your wife first. Think about how you can come under her and affirm her and lift her up and, and uh, make her life happy and surround her with love. Wife, you want to be happy, do the same thing to your husband. And now what you get, instead of this fallen you know, tendency to keep on you know, being one up on one another, now you have people who are coming under one another and that's the very de- definition of joy. It's what, make God, what, what makes God happy and because he created us, it's what makes us happy. It's the way the world actually works. We're created in the image of God. Amen. Amen. Mm. Are you getting a popping sound out of there? Or is it just in the in the monitors here? It's just you guys are. Is, I sound okay because I'm getting popping back here, but I can ignore it. It was not bothering you. Okay, let's move on. Uh, let's go back to Genesis one again. It applies generally to all of our relationships. It says in Genesis one, God said, "Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion." Now, note there, the dominion is connected to the likeness. When we're in God's likeness, we have dominion. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, the wild beast, and all the creeping things. God, nowhere else in Genesis 1 does God use this first person plural when he creates the light and the birds and fish and all that stuff. It just says the Lord made them. But when it comes to human beings, beings there's there's this deliberation that goes on and this first person plural let us it's like there's something significant going into the creation of this humanity the first person plural is there to emphasize the fact that it is when we are us that we reflect the image of God the image of God isn't only and even primarily located in the individual it's located in the us and it applies to the individual because you're part of an us Your being in the image of God is connected to the whole being in the image of God. And the whole being in the image of God is connected to your being in the image of God. Human beings are created with an us nature, a we nature, such that our individual fulfillment, and that's good, our individuality, which is very precious to God, all of that is fulfilled most perfectly when we're joined to another us. God personally loves you, personally wants you to be fulfilled, personally wants you to be all you can be, personally wants you to be living a full and vibrant life. He personally wants that for you individually, which is precisely why he says, don't be seeking it only on an individual basis. Seek it in relationship to the whole. Because I made you guys, and I know how you operate. And if you join in with an us, now you're going to be living life much fuller, doing much more than you ever could individually. We have an us nature. That reflects the triune God. Not only do, when I stop thinking of me and I start, I don't stop thinking about me, but I think about me in relationship to the we and that's how I reflect the Trinity. I love that little poem. Uh, When when I stop thinking only about me and I start thinking about we, no, when I I think about me, (laughs) diddly diddly dee. (laughs) Oh, how can it be? When I think about me in relationship to we, that's when I reflect the Trinity. Yo, when I think about me in relationship to we, that's when I reflect the Trinity. Okay, I better stop. I prepared all week for that rap, and I blew it. I just can't believe <laughs> Classic example of this. We not only reflect the image of the triune God, but we begin to move into the power of the triune God when we mirror the triune God. When we form in us, we have a power that dwarfs what we have individually. It even dwarfs what we have putting all the, the, the individuals together. Just like with an ant. Well, what you get together when you have a colony of ants is much more than the seven little behaviors all added up. You get something at a much higher level, an emergent property that, that exemplifies a much greater degree of complexity than just all the additions of the ants. So also with human beings. When we come together and, and have a united vision and a united focus, we have something that's much more powerful than just all of our individual stuff added together. There's an exponential power that comes because now we're operating consistent with the nature of the world rather than against the nature of the world. I told you this would be a little bit academic, but follow me on this whole thing. I'll give you a, a, a concrete example of this, a real clear example of this. In 1955 Alabama, uh, you had this is in the Jim Crow South where they had the separ- separate but equal laws uh, They keep the races separate. Uh, but the ones who defined what equal was were the white folks... So it wasn't all that equal. It's equal as long as it favors us. So here's what equal looked like in terms of the busing system. When a, when a black person in the Jim Crow South had to, uh, with all these Jim Crow laws, when they got on a bus, they had to pay their fare, get off the bus, go to the back of the bus and sit in the back. And the white folks got to sit up front. And if the white section got all full uh, and a white person wanted a black person's seat, the black person had to stand up and let them take that seat. That's what equal meant back in those good old days. And um, uh, you see, the thing was, is uh, that as long as the individuals, the African-American individuals thought in terms of me, no one bucked the system because no one wants to go to jail. That was the the punishment if you violated one of these Jim Crow laws. So no one's going to go to jail. Everyone's looking for their own interest. But around 1955, a movement was started when Rosa Parks defied the system and refused to give up her chair. Now, Martin Luther King, amen, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King got up, and the, the black community was very divided. They didn't even know who should lead this, and they chose Martin Luther King because uh, he was kind of a stranger. as a young guy. They thought they could, you know, some groups thought they could maybe you know, just control him, but he, he stood up, and he wasn't going to be controlled by anybody, and he gave leadership to what became of movement, and what he preached, and what happened here was this. While we individually are powerless against this, we have zero power individually against this racism. When we come together, we've got great power. See, it's just the way the world operates. Zero plus zero plus zero plus zero comes to zero. Wouldn't you think so? No! You put all those zeros together and you've got something very powerful. Most, uh, uh, most whites could afford cars. Most blacks couldn't. So who's riding the bus the most? It's the black folk. And so if we boycott this, this system, if we just decide... We individually don't go for the blind, okay? We, we decide individually that we're going to sacrifice for the good of the whole. We can break the back of this racist busing system, and that's exactly what they did. <laughs> individually, they couldn't do it. But collectively, they could bring it about. And see, it required incredible sacrifice on the part of every individual. Some people had to walk seven or eight miles uh, to work in the hot Alabama sun. That's not pleasant. There was increased racial pressure and, and persecution that went on. They had to take that, but they stood together, they stood united, they stood strong. And as a result of that, here's what happened. The individuals who were part of this boycott, the individual African Americans began to really sense what it was to have the dignity of a human being. We're fighting this thing. We're not going to roll over anymore. And there's a, there's a, they, they sensed a pride in that, a power in that they'd, they'd never known before. By, by, by thinking of what's, in, what's for the good of the whole, the individual gets blessed. That, that movement gave birth to some incredible creativity as they bonded together to fight off some of the attacks of the white racists who were persecuting them, and they got carpools together, they got daycare centers together, they pooled their, their financial resources together to help out various families that, that uh, went through hard times during this whole thing. It was an incredible unifying movement. It was good for every individual, it was good for the group, and it was also good for those outside the group. Some whites joined into this us thing. Uh, other, uh, other areas of the country began to, uh, uh, blacks began to get involved in boycotts. They began to notice other areas that if they were united, they could do something about. It gave rise to the civil rights movement. We're still benefiting from the impact of that first initial busing boycott, all because some people realized that it's not about me, it's about we, and I'm most fully me when I'm associated with a we. It's the vision that carries it forward. I'll tell you someone else who benefited a whole lot from that whole thing, and that is white folks. Because as Martin Luther King always preached, you can't dehumanize somebody without yourself becoming de- dehumanized. You can't enslave somebody without being to some degree enslaved. So it's good for blacks, it's good for whites, it's good for everybody that everybody is free. And because it took 12 months of suffering. It took 12 months of, of walking in this united vision. But, but after 12 months, or I guess it was 14 months, the back of this racist bus, busing system was broken. Blacks got to sit on any bus, anywhere they wanted, and they have to give up their seat to anybody. And that's the way it ought to be. Amen. It's the power of the we. The power of the we. I have and maybe you have sometimes wondered why, why God decided to spread his, his message through the church. You know, why, why use the church as the primary vehicle for spreading the kingdom of God in this world? He could have, I would have thought, done it a little different. Maybe just have our own individual relationships with God. Everyone has their own private relationship with Jesus. And, and he can come up with some other way of, of spreading the kingdom, but he didn't do it that way. And I've sometimes wondered, you know, God, was that really a wise move? You look at the church and and you sometimes say, Lord, (laughs) you've got to be kidding. You you know, this is, uh, you're going to change the world with this? Honestly, uh, you know, it's, It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hassle. When you join yourself to the we of a church, you now are, you know, you got to put up with people. You know, some of the people are weird. Some of them got odd opinions. Some of them, you know, have different behaviors. And and you got to negotiate that old thing. You got to, you know, uh, sacrifice some of your own individual ways of doing things. It takes a lot of organization. You got to spend, you have a lot of committees. You got to do a lot of planning. If you got 5,000 people in a church, it's a lot of work, let me tell you you know, and keeping it all going in the same direction. A lot of work. Lord, isn't there another way? his answer is, no. (laughs) Nope. This is how it's going to get done. You see, because this is what mirrors, this is what mirrors my character. Uh, You can do so much more uh, collectively than you could ever do individually. This is the way it's going to run. The, The church the church is composed of those individuals and the goal who, who, who are believers in Christ, and the goal is for us to learn to live godly, which in part means the discipleship of community, learning how to think of our good in relationship to the good of the whole. The early church would have been exterminated almost instantly if, if, if it had remained just a bunch of individuals. Under the persecution that they were a part of, they, they never would have done anything. As it is, within a hundred years, under persecution, the church had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Why? Because they knew the value of community. They knew how to, how, to, how to put the whole in view and not just go out of their own interest. It says in Acts chapter 2, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. These were folks who knew how to to think about themselves in relationship to others. Recovering the original ideal of the let us make man in our image. Let us make the church in our image. The body of Christ where everybody is, is thinking about the whole. That's, that's why they could band together. That's how they were so powerful. That's why they were, they were the, as it were, the civil rights movement of, of uh, the, 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 the first century. They understood what the bees know, what the birds know, what the ants know, what these quantum particles know. And that's that we can do so much more together than we can ever do individually. Every metaphor in the Bible about the church expresses this unity and diversity, this God-like unity and diversity in nature. The church is a temple, and we are all individual bricks. We need all the bricks to hold the temple together. The, the, the church is an army where a bunch of soldiers are disciplined for the sake of a higher vision, and we march towards that vision. The church is a body. My body, every part of my body appreciates when the rest of the body is working well. When one part of the body is not working very well, it, it affects everything. Miracles still occur, you know, folks. I, I went to the dentist this week. Uh, second time in 18 years. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh-huh, uh. You know, and, and my teeth appreciate it, but I think the rest of me appreciates it. You know, if, you got it, if, if, if you're having a throbbing toothache, uh, you're not good for much of anything, are you? You see, what goes on with the teeth affects the hole. What goes on with the hole affects the teeth. So also, what you know, good are my, my uh, teeth going to be if I can't uh, use my hands to, to feed myself, or if I can't you know, the whole thing, uh, my eyes can't operate with my toes, my toes need my hands, my hands need my arteries, my arteries need my colon, my colon needs my kidney, and you get the whole picture. I don't need to do a lesson in anatomy. The whole thing's a whole. And so it is in the body of Christ. So it is in the body of Christ. We all have a role to play, eye, tooth or whatever. And the individual benefits by the good of the whole, and the good of the whole benefits by the individual playing their part. You see, ask yourself this question, uh, you know, just, just, just to make, make this a little bit more concrete. How many people individually, uh, you as an individual, how many people can you lead to, to the Lord in a given year? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe one maybe ten maybe you're one of these street people who you know street evangelists who do this a lot but uh, it, it's not many is it and for a lot of people that's just not you know you're you not real bold in that you get tongue tied and this is not your gift you know and that's an okay thing okay so it, not many but see together together it's not just one plus one plus one plus one, plus one. it's this it's this. Uh, john nash equilibrium kind of thing when we come together on this think about the good of the whole i can i can when i'm doing it in relationship with you i can save 500 a thousand people or so a year uh that's what we've been averaging uh at woodland hills church why because because it's not about one individual it's about everybody do it together oh by the way this is our second anniversary uh for being in this building praise the lord yes And it's about what we can do together. How many kids can you impact in your life? Well, you can impact your kids and maybe a couple other kids. But see, together, when we're, we're joining forces, when we're united by a vision, we can impact hundreds of kids every week. You see, how many marriages can you save in a lifetime? Maybe one, maybe two, when your friends are going, you know, kind of on the rocks, you help them out. You know, maybe more, maybe less, but not Many. But see, together we can, we, we can minister to dozens of marriages every week, hundreds of American, uh, uh, marriages a year, thousands in a decade, and that all comes back on us individually. We are more ourselves when we're part of a system that's doing that than we would be if we were just trying to do it individually. It's good for you, it's good for me, it's good for us, and it's good for them. You see, it's, it's the win-win kind of a situation. How much can you individually do to tear down the, 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 the racial walls that, that, that divide the church and to tear down the economic uh, uh, un, uh, un, unjust distribution that characterizes not only society but characterizes the church? Uh, what can you individually do about that? What can you do to unite churches here in the Twin Cities? Probably not much. Let's see, together, together, if we're in this together, you can do a lot. I can do a lot because we're not doing it alone. And what's good for you, and what's good for me, is to think about it as an us. And that's good for us, and it's good for everyone who's going to benefit from that whole thing. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're planning on doing this uh, sanctuary plant in Minneapolis, which will be a church and an economic center, and we're dialoguing with other suburban churches to help fund, fund, fund this and to set up this resource in the inner city that will be a, uh, a, a center for helping other ministries. We started with uh, basically us, and then we got another church on board. To date, there's, I, I, I'm told about nine churches that want to be a part of this whole thing, okay? Funding this whole thing. Amen! That's how you do it! Not only is it not just about you and not just about me, but it's not even just about us. It's about the church and the Twin Cities. So we've got to think as an us on every level. What's good for us individually is not just to think about us, but to think about the larger us. Just like what's good for you individually is not just, just to think about yourself individually, but think about the whole that, that you are a part of. How many Vietnamese are you going to save this year? Probably not a lot. How many Vietnamese are you going to be able to minister to with medical treatment? Probably not a lot, but you know what? I can build myself a, 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 a medical clinic in Cambodia. I can, build, I, I can build it, I can make it into a church uh, in, in Cambodia. And it, through this medical clinic, I, I can reach hundreds of people. I can minister to hundreds of people every week, thousands of people a year, tens of thousands in, in a decade. I can do that alone, never. But with you, ah, we can do that. We can do that. And the impact, the, the ramifications of that, the ripple effect of that goes on and on and on and on, and all of it comes back to us. If I'm going to get, if I'm going to be all I can be in the kingdom of God, and if you're going to be all you can be for the kingdom of God, and that's the central purpose of life, we've got to do it together. If I'm going to get as much of the, the, the well done, thou good and faithful servant as I can get from my master, I need you. I'm passionate about bringing you on board, partly for my own interest. I want as much reward as possible. But see, my interest is in your interest, and your interest is in my interest, so let's do it together. <laughs> it's that easy. Finally, finally, let me just ask this. How, how many, you know, we, we have uh, in the Twin Cities here, there are thousands and thousands of teenagers uh, that don't know the Lord, thousands and thousands of teenagers who would never think about walking in a church, thousands of teenagers who have nothing to do after school, have nothing to do on the weekends, therefore thousands of teenagers who are getting into a lot of trouble. we got uh, a lot of teenagers getting involved in gangs and a lot of teenagers getting involved in drugs and a lot of teenagers that are... Are dropping out of school, and a lot of teenagers that are getting pregnant, and a lot of teenagers that are struggling with sexually transmitted diseases, and a lot of teenagers that are, are, uh, are uh, struggling at home and, and have issues with their parents, and a lot of teenagers that are just plain lonely. And what are you going to do about that? How much, can you, how much of that problem that I just gave can you individually solve? Good luck. Do as much as you can individually. That's wonderful. I'm not bashing that, but you can't do much. You can't do much. Take one pregnant teenager who's scared. Uh, you know, uh, do you know what it would be to, to walk with her and say, you know what, I, I'm going to love you and I'm going to love your child. and I'm, I, I will make this viable to go full term with this. Uh, and, and I'll support you every step of the way. And I, I want to, you know, just, uh, uh, I'll be your friend. Who, who, who can do that? Maybe you can once in a lifetime or maybe once a year. But see, what can we do together? If, if, if we just suppose built a youth center. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and we staff that youth center. Uh, think of the impact that this can have in terms of getting kids off the street. How many hundreds a week? How many thousands a year? How many 10,000s a decade can I get off the street? How many, how many uh, scared teenagers can I walk with? through a pregnancy? How many kids can I help get off of drugs? How many kids can I help solve some of their family conflicts? How many kids can I help maybe train to get you know a good occupation? How many kids can I befriend? Well, I can't do many alone, but if I'm doing it with you, and you're doing it with me, and we're all doing it as an us, we can do a tremendous amount. Praise God. A great, great deal. Far more than... Far more than just the addition of your power, my power, that power, that power. No, it's an exponential thing. It's an ant thing. It's a bee thing. It's a bird thing. It's a John Nash thing. It's a biblical thing. Here we reflect the model of the Trinity. I want to close with this. You have on your uh, uh, chair today, if you didn't get this, uh, pick it up on the way out, uh, a, a brochure. I just want you to start. Please keep this, read it, and just start chewing on it. Just start praying about it. Will you make this part of your prayer life? Just, you know, uh, stick it in there. This, this is uh, a, a vision that God has given to us. We're calling this Growing in the Spirit. When we moved in here two years ago, we called that Moving in the Spirit. And God just kind of uh, did the impossible uh, to get us in here. Well, we're trusting God to do the, the impossible again. And this time the theme is Growing in the Spirit. We got here, and now it's time to grow. Time to grow individually, time to grow as a community, time to really become all that we can be. The three objectives that we're listing as part of this, this campaign is, uh, and it's, uh, on one level, it's a fun drive, but we see it, that as being the caboose. The engine on this whole thing is growing spiritually. And so our themes are becoming, building, and bridging. Becoming, building, and bridging. We want to become all that we can be for Jesus Christ, individually and as a community. We want to build uh, this, the, a youth center. We want to build a hospital church in Cambodia. We want to help build a sanctuary Economic Center in Minneapolis. We want to be in relationship with other ministries that help build a kitchen uh, to feed the homeless in St. Paul and help build uh, some houses for battered women in St. Paul. And we've been working with other ministries. It's about becoming, it's about building, and it's about bridging. We want to bridge to this generation A people, a group that otherwise would not have anything to do with church. We want to be a bridge to them. We want a bridge to other churches in the suburbs to uh, uh, broaden the vision to have a heart for the city. We want a bridge to the city. We want to help other churches bridge to the city. We want a bridge to Cambodia, for for, for goodness sake. That's what the church is called to, to, to be. What's the price tag on that? Yeah. Nine million or something like that, you know. I look at that and it's like, no way, no way. You probably look at that and you say, no way, nine million, nine million, nine million dollars. (laughs) If there's anybody in this auditorium who's not saying nine million dollars, I'd like to meet you right afterwards on the (laughs) gathering here. You have a role to play. (laughs) Uh, But see, you know what? Yeah, the economy right now is not doing too good and we might be going to war. But the question we've got to ask ourselves is this. Do we let uh, wartime, and do we let economy drive our vision, or do we let God drive our vision? Amen? Amen? Is God bigger than a war? Is God bigger than the economy? See, the variable here, the variable in this whole thing is not out there. The variable is in us. Okay? And it's not just in us individually. It's in us collectively. That's the only important variable. If you got faith and you got people who are willing to walk in obedience, God's got the resources. It's just a matter of getting a channel to let it flow through. So I want, I want us all to be together praying about this whole thing. Pray about how God might use you, all right? What role might you have in this whole thing? Are you an eye? Are you a tooth? Uh, are you a fingernail? What, what, what is your role? And, and how might God use you to further this vision of what we can do together? It comes back on all of us individually when we do it together. We're building a team right now, and I just want you to think about this. Uh, A team of people, there's a lot of ants we need to carry this log, to bend this leaf, to form this colony. A lot of manpower that needs to get done. And uh, if we get a lot of people doing it, there's only a little bit of work for everybody, but if there's only a few people doing it, I get stuck with it, and there's a lot of work, and I don't want to do that. So besides, it's just not biblical. We want to we broaden this thing. If you get a phone call, we're doing it through a network, and, and you get invited to be on a team, would you consider saying yes? I know our schedules are busy. We're all crammed. I got that. But consider saying yes. Pray about saying yes to be a part of this team. If everybody does a little, your seven little behaviors, we can form an incredible uh, army of ants. Uh, that can do way more than we could ever do individually. Be praying about that. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I want to ask the prayer team to come forward here. And if there's any need that you have, uh, that you want to have prayed for, I invite you to stay afterwards. If you're here this morning, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you really, 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 really need to become part of the us of the army of God. And over in this corner, there'll be some people who will explain that to you. And so I invite you to come forward there. Could we stand? And close with this prayer. Father, I pray that you would make us an army. You would make us a body. You would make us a temple. You would make us one like one organism, Lord. Help us to move like one organism, to think like one organism, Lord God, to have a vision like one organism. Unite us in this, Lord God. I pray that each one of us would really see that it's in our own interest, Lord God, to benefit the whole, and it's in the interest of the whole to benefit each individual, Lord God. I pray tremendous blessing on every individual here and tremendous blessing on the whole of this church. Use Woodland Hills Church to do what otherwise would be impossible, Lord. And our commitment is to always shout out, Lord, it is to your glory. It is to your glory. It is to your glory. In Jesus' name, it is to your glory. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. The altar is open.